We've also recorded the most five minutes of Midwestern podcast ever because it's the spring and we've managed to talk about the weather. Hello and welcome to Major Revisions, America's favorite ecology podcast. I'm John Walter, and with me is Jeff Atkins and Grace Wilkinson, and we're in the same places as we've been for, like, the last year and a half, so <laughs> get used to it. We'll update you when that changes. Yeah, I, I think we should just send that out whenever, you know, so, something changes. Um, we'll tell you when it's when it gets weird. We won't... Um, anyway. I don't think it get much weirder, but okay. <laughs> Um, how's it going tonight? It's going. We're in that awkward time of year where it's now switched from being too cold in my office to being too hot in my office since it ratcheted up to 85 Fahrenheit today in Virginia. Oof. Um, after being like 30 the other morning. Yeah, it's springtime. So, it's good. Other than that, I'm doing well. Luckily, we escaped the second bomb cyclone. We didn't have any snow. Ames was in this perfect pocket. That everywhere around us got it, so it's it oh, still remains spring here. Caught it. Yeah, I, was I in, saw that. It was awesome. Yeah, we had thirty minutes where it was like total whiteout and blizzard, and it was great because everybody there was like, no big deal. Like they were still working at the desk. Oh, it's a blizzard. I'm just going to work away at my desk. And then later that night, there was a thunderstorm and it lightning like three times, and that was all anyone could talk about. Did you see the lightning? And it just reminded me of like. <laughs> You know how like, you you become acclimated to like different weather things, like you know, like I'm, I'm aware of tornadoes, but don't really have to deal with them. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I've been in a tornado before, and it gets kind of freaky. But like, I'm sure if you live in the Midwest, you're like, yeah, tornado, fine, just get in the basement, whatever. Whereas like lightning, I'm like, meh. That's like a regular Tuesday afternoon here. <laughs> I hear you. We legit thought that. Well, a severe storm went like just to the south of us today when we were out fish shocking and getting like after these experimental ponds and it was a very midwestern response from all of us we're like eh, we don't see any lightning <laughs> and if there's a tornado it's going to be south of us it's fine yeah yeah very <laughs> midwestern response right exactly you can see everything coming that's true the horizon right. does provide a sense of safety <laughs> John, how about you? How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, I did make it back from uh, Fort Collins on time, uh, despite a little bit of consternation over the bomb cyclone. Mm. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because you were you were stuck over there. Uh, yeah, well, I wasn't I stuck. I wasn't stuck. Oh, okay. That was <laughs> that. That was the good thing. Um, you know, I actually got kind of lucky. It managed to, you know, basically, you know, sort of like pass over us um, to the east of Denver and Fort Collins seemed to get the worst of it. And, you know, we got some snow and it was windy um, and there were flights canceled on the Wednesday, but I didn't fly out until Thursday. So everything seemed uh, seemed pretty good by then. For sure. The cyclone was decidedly not the bomb. 
They're really blue, having one in April. <laughs> Folks, I have a new game for you. Yes. It's called Would You Rather. <clears throat> so we got a bunch of questions. We need theme songs for our games. Uh, <laughs> you get to pick one of these, and you got to say why you picked it. So I'll, I'll read the first one. We'll take turns, because that's how games work. My children are working on this. Would you rather be able to know which collaborations will be successful or which students will be successful and productive? So think of something. Oh, interesting. For sure. Okay. I, I guess given like, like right now, a lot of, I mean, your success is, is based on both, right? But yes. there are ways to recover from bad collaborations often, but bad students can take just a huge amount of your time. Not that I would know, by the way, if any of my students are listening. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. In phrasing this, in phrasing this question, it's not to, to treat students like commodities or anything, but it's to know, I guess, like to say, maybe to know which ones will fit in your lab better. Yeah. That's what I mean by successful, right? Like who would fit in there in your lab and, and be successful and be productive? Or how do you feel like, you know, fruitful collaborations? John, what about you? Um, I mean, I, I, I do feel like probably students is also more valuable for the, for the reasons that Grace stated. Um, I mean, you know, not having grad students, of my own, I do kind of feel like I would personally benefit more from knowing which collaborations will be successful. But I, I, you know, I also think that like, in some ways, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit easier to tell with collaborations than with students. And, and also, yeah, like it's a little bit, it's a little bit lower stakes typically. Like if you don't work well with someone you know, maybe you write a paper with them and you don't write six. Um, but if you, you know, with a student, like you're really, you know, investing, um, you know, your time and your resources and, um, you know, trying to build them up as a scientist and, um, you know, and also hoping to receive the, the benefits of, um, you know, their, their success and productivity, um, as part of your, your group. So, um, yeah, I'd go with students. I like, I like it. Very thoughtful answer. Um, all right, I'll, I'll do the next one. Cause I, um, I pose this question. So right. would you, would you rather publish only sole author papers the rest of your career or never publish another first author paper. Oh god. I'd rather never publish the first author paper. Yeah, that's got to go with B on that one. Why, Jeff? Um I I just don't see that be I see like the success rate on that being really really low, right? I mean 
either one of these are extreme outliers. You're going to develop a reputation one way or the other, right? So one, if you only do sole author papers, everyone's just going to think you're a jerk who can't collaborate with anybody, right? Um, and those are going to be really time consuming and very few and far between likely. Whereas B, never published another first author paper, assumes that you're probably being more collaborative. So you're at least getting more stuff out there and being a part of more projects. Also, I guess I just like working with people more and I mean, solo author paper. I don't, uh, I don't know. Yeah. What about you, Grace? No, I, I think definitely that never publish another first author paper again. And especially if that can be the, uh, I think my idea of that has started to change a little bit as like students in the lab have started to publish and being senior author and having to tally those separately from like first author publications and total publications. Um, and that, yeah, there's just something about that. I don't know. D to me, that like that's a special place in my heart to be like, yeah, I helped make that happen. Like I helped mentor this and move this through and I got to collaborate with this cool person who's the first author. So I don't know. Yeah. Hold on. I had to, give me a second. I need to let the cat out of my I was office. just going to ask, <laughs> John, are you squeaking? Welcome to the fourth host of our podcast, John's cat, whose John name I've completely forgotten Harper. now. What is John's cat's Harper. name? Harper. Harper. That's right. Harper. Sorry. All right, I'm back. She was meowing up a storm. <laughs> well, speaking of animals, would you rather identify diet uh, diet items through feces or gastric lavage? Okay. Point of yes. order. Most feces are dry, though. So, are we doing with dry feces? That's fine. You can name the animal you're talking about. Okay, I'll dry feces all the way. I don't want to mess with it. Okay. John. Um. I mean, it seems. It seems easier through gastric <laughs> lavage. I mean, like, actually. Like. I don't know. I mean, think about, think about my own feces. Like, the amount of times I can. <laughs> I can guess what I ate. <laughs> I gotta say that the success rate is probably not very high. Um, Maybe we should clarify what gastric lavage is for. Yeah, that's power puking. I mean... um, that's that's flushing a bunch of saline or water solution down, forcing it down into the stomach so that you puke it back up, or the animal. <laughs> I mean, just thinking from a data perspective, I feel like your success rate, at least, you know, for, you know, things that are not dietary specialists, um, is probably much better with gastric lavage. I'm just, I'm just guessing. Yeah, I gotta there. say, and this question came about because some canine pooped on our driveway this weekend, and Robert and I, being the uh -huh. biologists that we are, spent a lot of time picking through it. And we both agreed that we'd prefer gastric lavage. So that's the origin of that question. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. I didn't think I would be on the island by myself. <laughs> so would you... Would you rather have members of the public at your field site who are always around asking you questions or a public that's rarely around but aggressively anti-science. So Vermont versus Mississippi, I guess. I don't know. 
<laughs> or just Wisconsin, whether you're with the DNR or not with the DNR. Um, Taking the DNR, the baddies? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Identifying yourself as not from the DNR was always positive in my experience. Interesting. You should watch the movie Escanaba and the Moonlight, and then you'll learn about the goddamn DNR. I don't know. What do you all think? I mean, having worked at Blandy, I got to go with the first one because I know it. Because, like, there are people around all the time. All the time. And they're usually nice, but they do ask a lot of questions. But, um... I don't know. I guess it's better than, and my experience in working in some place in West Virginia is that, you know, there are occasionally like I've had people trash field sites before, you know, because they didn't know what it was. I guess and and so I guess I'd rather have lots of friendly people, even though I don't really like people. But um, that seems like it would be better. Uh, what do, What do y'all think? I think I agree. I do too, but I think with the caveat of having an out because I've definitely had days where I've spent a lot of time standing at boat launches listen to people tell me fish stories in the name of not trying to be the rude scientist from the university that their tax dollars support so I don't know there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of me that's like "Eh, I'd rather you're a jerk but you know those jerks like steal our sensors and shit so I don't know All right. Hard question. Hard question. What's next? You get to work on oh, a field site that you Hold on. I, I'm going to ask this one in. because I don't do field work. <laughs> and so. Okay. <laughs> all right. Would you rather get to work at a field site you've always wanted to work at, but get partnered with the worst possible field crew, or have to work in your idea of hell, but the crew is awesome? 100% I would work in hell if the people were great. Field work is all about the experience of the people, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta go with that one too. There's more hesitancy in your voice, though. I'm imagining what my idea of hell is, and it's not a play. <laughs> Do you all ever watch um, the TV show The Good Place? Okay, well then, never mind. I, I actually know what, my, if you do watch that TV show, uh, there's the good place and the bad place, and the bad place is specific to you, and I know what my bad place is, and it's like really pedantic, never shuts up, um, stale pale males taking me on a field trip around lakes constantly, and mansplaining limnology to me. That's my bad place. <laughs> Anyways, I think I could still take that if I had other comrades with me that were great. I was going to make a rude comment, but I'm going to refrain. So this next one, Jeff, you posed this one. It's fantastic. I think I got to let you ask it. Would you rather have a first author paper accepted in Nature and Science, followed by nothing but rejection for the following year for any paper that your name is on? Or... For the next two years, or next three years, anything you submit to any journal with an impact factor above two will be rejected, but anything below two will be accepted. 
John. Okay. After Jeff posed an earlier version of this question, and I was like, hands down, I'll take the uh, the non-nature science option. Um, but after revision, I think I would take the 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 um, the first author paper in nature science. Yeah, and it's just a year after that, so like, you know, quality over quantity. If I could have one paper for that year that was guaranteed to be accepted in nature and science, and it's just the only one, okay. Well, hold on, hold on. I mean, I'm, I want to talk to you. Th- <clears throat> I want to talk you through this. Um, the we want to look at Web of Science here, journal's impact factor in ecology. I'm going to tell you some that are under two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, journal of Geophysical Research. Landscape ecology, uh, ecology and society, uh, paleobiology, remote sensing ecology and conservation, biological invasions, ecosphere, journal of vegetation science, ecological indicators. I'm telling you, you could run up a score. I and all all Just lovely journals and published wonderful science. Um, I would still for I mean. Publications are the currency of the realm, right? But quality matters. So I think I'd, I'd keep my original answer. What about you all? Uh, yeah, and uh, nature, ecology, and evolution will have an impact factor by three years from now. So, <laughs> uh, John's alluding to our second annual impact factor draft, which is coming soon. Yes, and it has to because impact factors come out in June. <laughs> yeah, well, and and that would, I mean, nature, ecology, and evolution would probably be a, a good pick. So, but I have a new strategy this year, and I'm not revealing it before <laughs> before the draft. Um, after I sucked last time. All right. Would you rather have ten years of no issues with any equipment? whatsoever are 10 years with no travel issues whatsoever this is probably an obvious one for john uh yeah this is one that i should have asked because i don't work with okay equipment, it includes your so. computer uh all right <laughs> <laughs> which which one all of them all of them no. um any any equipment i'd st- I'd still take the 10 years with no travel issues. Jeff? Interesting. Uh, I'm going equipment. Yeah. Hard. Like, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, it's not even close. I 100% agree. What is a piece of equipment that's the bane of your existence? Oh, oh, this goddamn Hagloff unit behind me that's supposed to like measure trees in space like automatically and works with my GNSS GPS unit here which actually does work pretty well thank you Trimble for making stuff that actually works but uh, Swedish company Hagloff this thing's a piece of junk oh, no. I hate it the best part is when you're transferring data it flashes on the screen and it just says deleting ah. I, 
I don't know why. It's just like deleting file, deleting file. And you're like, you just make it say transferring. Like, don't make it say deleting. If you're transferring, it's it's a mess. What about you, Grace? Which one do you hate? Oh, for sure, equipment. Uh, sometimes travel woes. What's the bane of your turn existence? Into fun. The bane of my existence probably has to be our discrete analyzer. So it's like this robot that sits on the bench top and does all the wet chemistry for doing like nutrient analyses and things, which seems like it would be really great, right? But it's an expensive yeah. robot and it has issues often and it, uh, yeah, yeah. Whew. The, the, the discrete analyzer is definitely the bane of my existence. We renamed it G. Evelyn Hutchinson because it's a gender ambiguous <laughs> name. <laughs> I don't care what you say about the scientists. It's a gender ambiguous name. And uh, yeah, G. Evelyn gets cursed at a lot in the lab. We actually have created an entire shrine where everybody has brought in um, some sort of totem or um, relic or saint or something from their religion or a place that they've recently visited. And that's sort of gotten Jeflin to behave a little bit better. That and the googly eyes we put on it. But yeah. That's really nice. (laughs) That's the bait. Googly eyes really help. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Final one. And we're going to get to the main show tonight. You have to pick between two of these, or one of these, rather. You only get to work in Excel, but your office is totally badass. Whatever your vision of the perfect working environment it is, that's what it is, right? It can be coffee on tap, cold brew, whatever. Your chair is just, it's awesome. Everything's totally great. Or you can work in whatever whatever way you want, but your office is always going to smell like stale cheese, and there's going to be an inconsistent noise that you can't really identify that's always going to be there and it's always going to drive you a little crazy. But it's inconsistent because it's going to be there, but it's going to like kind of change and pitch and everything, so it's going to be annoying. It's not going to be something you can acclimate to. Go. John? I can't work in Excel. Are you <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> Dude, that's your bad place? that's that's my bad place the stale cheese smell is always going to be there you can't mask it you can't hide it it's always going to be there and so is going to be the noise all right i can at least turn up my music really fucking loud and piss off my neighbor this hostile work environment i just don't want my office to be next to next to john's uh (laughs) I think I would also take the steel cheese and inconsistent noise. I feel like the inconsistent noise I've been treated to since I started in my current office. So I know it has only contributed to the crazy, but hasn't driven me to the like the brink. And the stale cheese is, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of what my dog smells like. So I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> He's healthy. Kind of like home. <laughs> How about you, Jeff? Oh, I guess I'm going to go with y'all, but, uh, yeah, I couldn't work in Excel. Just like, I don't even know. I don't even know how to use Excel anymore. So. I don't either. And I have to do much, so much point and click shit. I can't do that. <laughs> I don't know how to do anything. Like, if you just want to like look at data, like it's complicated. Someone please build a really 
something better than Google Sheets. That's like it'll just I just want to look at it. That's all I want to do. I, I use Excel to like just convert to CSV files is all that I do with it basically. And then it has like this it's it's super insecure insecure about it. It's like you, you sure you want to do that? It's like yeah, I want it in CSV <laughs> format, Excel. Are you really really sure? Like are you totally sure? Like I can save it as something else. Like no, Excel. This is the one thing that you do. Why don't you do it? <laughs> How about save as? Cuz you know, then there'll just at least be two of them. I like that insecure Excel. <sighs> well, so tonight we are actually returning to our classic papers in ecology series, and we have challenged each other in our classic papers that we select this time to um, try to think a little bit outside the box in terms of authors. Really enjoyed the ones we talked about last time, but they were definitely dominated by European male authors. The, the, the box, yes, as it were, is, is still, is still yes, pale is. males. And so we are um, breaking outside of that this evening to talk about Power 1990 in Science. This is a paper by Mary Power, um, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, past president of ESA, American Society of Naturalists. She has done a lot and continues to still do a lot. Um, and she's known for a lot of different things, including her groundbreaking synthetic work on river food webs, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. That's the topic of that paper. Um, her innovative use of large-scale experiments, just some really awesome shit and um, quotable. And um, yeah, she's also done a lot of work in, and how I first became familiar with some of her work was her um, thinking about food webs and coupling between different ecosystems, like aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems. So just an all-around pretty awesome scientist. So was this your all's first time reading the paper? Was for me. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, general synopsis? Well, I didn't, you know, I, I really realized that I don't really know much about food webs other than just kind of, you know, what they are, right? Like, so not much about how they develop. So it was interesting for me to kind of read like this work really for the first time. So it was just kind of, I don't know, I thought it was really cool. It was really fascinating, very, you know, kind of uh, you know, behind the curtain look, right? Like I'm aware of like looking at the food web, like in a textbook, right? You know, I, I don't deal with anything that looks with animals. So it was kind of cool to like look at like, you know, how she constructed this experiment and um, yeah, I mean, I was just really enthused by it. I thought it was really neat. It's a very well-written piece and it's cool. Like every piece of it seems to fit into it. Does that make sense? Like every piece of it seems like it's built into it really well. Yeah, it's a really tight so story. Aspect of, yeah. And so that was very, very noticeable, I think. Which, I mean, you know, part and parcel with science, but still, like, not all papers like that are like that. And so it's still, yeah, really, really cool paper. Yeah, one thing that struck me about it is how much of that, you know, those first, you know, five or six paragraphs are really setting up the natural history of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought... Um, I just appreciated that a lot. I thought that was really cool. And it's something that, I mean, I think maybe ecology has gotten away from a little bit, you know, at least that's not really the way that 
um, that I think about things, mostly because I don't know a damn thing about natural history, and I've probably never actually touched whatever I'm writing about. Uh, (laughs) That was brave to admit out loud. (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's true, so uh, I I might as well. Um, But yeah, I mean... Yeah, that, that was one thing that really, really struck me about it. Um, but, you know, thinking sort of about the, the synopsis of the paper, um, this is this is coming at a, a point in time where I think that there's a kind of a debate about, or at least I gather from the paper that there's a debate about how river food webs are controlled, uh, whether it's sort of a, um, a hydrological or physical regime that structures uh the community dynamics or whether it's trophic interactions is that is that true grace yeah i think so and i think in my understanding um from the sort of lodic literature is that and that's uh it, that's somewhat of a, a common debate or a common question right in thinking about what's really driving the bus in terms of dynamics or like why is all this algae here right or um in particular in the system that why is why is, right, why is the world green right HSS 1960, yeah. yeah, which was definitely brought up in this, is, is why is the world green and remain so green? Um, and so why why are some rivers green and why do they remain so green? And is it physics? So like these really large scouring events and sloughing events and the way that flow really controls the ability for that primary production to still exist there and be primary producers? Um, or does it have to do more with the trophic interactions and the food web? And I think the prevailing paradigm, or my sense was, is that the time was that sort of the side of the hydrology and the physics was, quote unquote, winning the debate. Um, and this work was really seminal because it demonstrated that using a ecosystem experiments, which is just really cool, um, I'm always, you know, big ups for ecosystem experiments, then in fact, the trophic interactions are really what's shaping um, that paradigm are, are really controlling what's going on there. That's that's why the river is so green. So, yeah. So what were the experiments? <laughs> well, there there were two related ones, right? So the, the first one um, and the one that gets the most uh, sort of page length is um, this exclosure experiment where um, she placed uh, pretty large exclosures, um, six meter squared cages um, in the river um, along a one kilometer stretch of river. Um, And some of these were um, sort of stocked with fish so that they had um you know predators i think uh sort of like so we have obviously like the base of the food web um some herbivores uh and some fish that are there's sort of like a middle um tier of consumers and then um like a higher tier of consumers and so they're stocked with that higher tier of consumers some of the the um the cages and others are um left without that um that top predator class 
Yeah, and then they watched the. She observed the Cladophora. I, I keep saying we because we're we're. I think we're very used to thinking about these big experiments happening with multiple people. This is a single author paper, which just floors know, me, right? right? <laughs> which is awesome. Um, but so then she followed the Cladophora standing stack over the course of this experiment. So the Cladophora is the main primary producer, which is like a filamentous green algae that looks like this like gorgeous mermaid hair, in my opinion, growing off the rocks in these streams it's, it's the green real feathery stuff yeah right? but it, with these um in particular this cladophora like it goes through various stages and it turns different colors based on like the diatoms that have encrusted it and whether or not it's starting to slough Whoa. and die off so if i'm remembering correctly it goes from like green to yellow to sort of a reddish brown and then sloughs off yeah oh, and wow. so it's, it goes through this whole phenology huh. or like evolution over the course of a season depending on what's yeah, but the but the cladophora is really the key thing there, right? Because whether or not the coronamids have been able to infest it and take over and weave their nets and reduce the cladophora biomass is dependent on whether or not there are predators there helping control them, right? And and that was dependent yeah. upon the fish. So in the exclosures, there was higher cladophora biomass because the predators were able to take care of the coronamids, but in the enclosures. Um, the predators or the predators weren't taking care of them as much in the enclosures there was a lot of predation pressure right so the chronomids were released from that um, and took over I said that right right yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm, trophic cascades <laughs> figure three here I'm, I'm looking yeah, at figure, figure three here looking at algal height this is fascinating yeah, and that, I thought one of the things that was really cool was um, how she was able to tie it to this idea about top-down versus bottom-up control and nutrient limitation hypotheses, so that um, when the Clodophora was essentially released from that predation, from the coronamids, or that really strong predation, right, that's when um, nutrient limitation of that as a primary producer started to kick in, and that's why the end-fixing... Um, diatoms as well as the end fixing nostoc could really take over because they were helping alleviate that nitrogen limitation right um so i thought that was really cool that's actually those end fixers were um when i worked on this system i was lucky enough to do that in the summer of 2010 as a sort of um gc monkey and uh lab manager between undergrad and grad school and we worked on this question about the nitrogen fixers on the cladophora and how much it actually accounted for in the budget. And depending on sort of when and where you measured it, the nitrogen fixation was a huge amount of the nitrogen budget in these streams, which was really cool, like 30% or more. Yeah, really so cool. it was a really cool system to work on. This is kind of a magical place to work. It's, it's like, it never rained, but it was like <laughs> 75 or 80 during the day and then it would get down to like 50 at night and clear skies and gorgeous and it was like a, a like free, like i get why people move to california and stay there after spending a summer in mendocino county holy crap <laughs> except for the minute you got outside the gates of the angelo there were people growing pot illegally and they had lots of guns and scary dogs um so it was a little <laughs> bit of a toss-up <laughs> but <laughs> Uh, so Grace, maybe maybe you know a little bit more of like the history of uh, of Power's work before this paper. I mean, she, impressively, she measured a ton of stuff in this experiment. Um, 
how much how much of her work or maybe work of others were you know kind of like building towards the knowledge of this system or this type of system that you know kind of like laid the groundwork for um her knowing like you know yeah like i should quantify the you know different diatoms and epiphytes that are living on the cladophora so i can say something about like nutrient mm-hmm. limitation yeah that's a great question and so i guess i can speak to what i know um and that is that i th- i think mary power got her phd in 1981 in washington and then she began as faculty in 87 at berkeley if that's yeah i think that's right um and then became the director of the angelo coast range reserve where these um, rivers and stream systems are located in 89. So very soon after is when this paper came out. So maybe this was some of her first work there, but I think the Angelo existed prior to that. So I'm sure there was a lot of, um, information and knowledge in particular, there's a great prairie, sort of like grassland, not prairie, sorry. I'm in Iowa. I think everything with grass is a prairie, um, a great grassland system there. Um, there's been, you know, lots of great geology work that's happened in this area. So I'm sure there was a foundation to be built upon, but I think one of the things that um, Mary Power is really known for is also her natural history work and her conservation work. And so I I think she's just, my understanding and and my interactions with her, she's just a really careful natural historian. Um, And so I think some of that just really comes from her potentially too, I'm sure. Awesome. This really raises the question, I think, of, of maybe a conversation we can have later about does natural history matter? Yeah, that's why I don't just work with all theoreticians. <laughs> it, 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 it is something that has made the Twitter rounds every now and then. It, it's a question that comes up, you know, like, does natural history matter in ecology anymore? And so, I, I don't know, this paper kind of think goes on one aspect of that or one side of that argument i don't know i yeah (laughs) no i mean i guess it's probably not the right time to pursue this further but like you know i i totally see that there are other skills that have kind of like supplanted it in in some respects and you know, there certainly was a time in ecology when you could publish work that was a lot of natural history observations and not that mu- not that rigorous an experimental design or not that great statistics that I don't think really flies today. But I don't think that that in any way means that natural history isn't important and valuable in, um, you know, driving ecology and in doing good ecology. Yeah, when, when we talk about um, ecosystem ecology, we often refer to Carpenter's Table, um, which is a paper we can post in, in the comments to this. But the, the four legs that hold up Carpenter's Table, so ecosystem ecology is um, long-term data, modeling, um, experiments. Mm, I should know this better. Theory. 
theory. <laughs> um, but it's all sitting on this foundation or this floor, in my opinion, of natural history and observation. Um, because out of that, we can draw this other stuff. Oh, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm not, I'm not saying that the argument is that we don't need it. It's that maybe we're past it. Hmm. We should he's definitely have an entire episode on this. <laughs> Those are fighting words. I'm just asking a question to ask them. I don't. I don't know what I even think on this. I'm just saying, like, is the maturation of the field in a post natural history world? Because then one could argue that a lot of the basis for natural history, or even conservation biology, conservation ecology in general, is is predicated on colonialistic ideas in the first place. And so that any ideas that one has of natural history is always filtered through that lens. That I do not disagree with. Um, but so then by that... That's a, can I ask a question about Yeah, okay. <laughs> you're right, because I'm, I'm about to get going on this. So if you listeners have a strong <laughs> no, opinion no, right. about this's... this, please let us know. And we'd love to have you on to talk about it because this is going to make a great episode. Question about food webs. Yeah, yeah. No, We'll, we'll do we'll do this. Okay, so um, something I did not, I did not, I, I, I didn't, I guess like, yeah, I don't know this, so it's fascinating to me to learn. So even number and odd number food webs, that's a whole like thing, like that, it's based on trop- trophic levels, right? So if you have an even number of trophic levels, that's bad and creates barren wastelands. Am I reading that wrong? Or then if you have an odd number of, of, trophic levels then you tend to be a nicer place did i just read this well i I think take it to an extreme and with the caveat that you're barren and your nice place has to do with primary production right um so like in lakes we think about this often as when you have an odd number of trophic levels then you are um see you would be so for example let's take a simple food web phytoplankton Daphnia, which are grazer zooplankton, and a fish that eats Daphnia. So there's three trophic levels. And that means that the fish is eating the Daphnia, and so the Daphnia are not doing as good of a job at controlling the phytoplankton, so the phytoplankton are allowed to flourish. And and if you add a top predator to that fish, now all of a sudden the fish that's eating the Daphnia, that planktivore is not around as much, and that releases the Daphnia from predation. And now the Daphnia can do a much better job grazing and being the cows of the lake, right? So, yeah, it definitely is dependent upon that, you know, whether you have even or odd numbers. And that's, that's that like, like trophic cascade idea and the idea that you could use that in a biomanipulative way to try to control primary production in your ecosystem. So in lakes, we often talk about that and thinking about in restoration, um, how to restore to an even number of trophic levels because you usually want to control the phytoplankton, right? It's not easy being green. But in the terrestrial side of things, that can cause a problem. Think about like the, um, uh, oh gosh, that place with the wolves, Yellowstone. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, so pre this work, then the, the supposition was that in, I guess, going back to the original point that in rivers, that the over controlling factor was more the underlying hydrology or some other exogenous factor overruled that. Is that correct? Yeah, like think about it in terms of that, the cladophora, like 
the amount that's there yeah. and the sloughing and all that, that's all controlled by the hydrology and scouring events and the winter rains and things versus the trophic interactions that are actually controlling its biomass. So I think it fundamentally comes out of this question of, and from HSS as well, like you just look around. I keep saying HSS because I can't remember how to say their last names. Uh, so chime in at any point. It's referred to as the HSS Fretwell, Fretwell model. Yes. Which is Harrison Smith and Slobodkin. Um, I had to remember there for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but essentially the, the, the first observation is like the world is green. Right. And, and we can measure that amount of green, you know, that biomass. And why is it there? Why is it maintained? And so really thinking about the questions about why the world is so green and it maintains its greenness. Um, and in rivers, the idea, or at least the debate presented here, is that a lot of that greenness was being controlled by things that had nothing to do with trophic interactions or food webs, or it certainly didn't have as much to do with that. And I think this work really clearly demonstrated through an ecosystem experiment that, yeah, trophic interactions, they matter. And there's just some really clear, wonderful figures. In addition, this is one of the few papers where pictures are included that I think it like really helps make the point. I usually hate it oh, totally. when pictures are included in papers. Um, Do you really? Yeah, I'm not a fan. Oh. Unless it's actually helping illustrate a point. Otherwise, I'll see a presentation. Um, <laughs> and look at your pretty pictures. I don't know. I don't know why I feel so strongly about it. It's really not that bad. I'm not trying to start a fight. I just, I don't know, it bothers me. No, it's okay. I'm going to edit this paper before I submit it next <laughs> week. <Never mind. laughs> well, recently I had to put a picture into a paper to respond to reviewers, and it was the first time I had to do it, and it bothered me. But it was the only way we could get reviewers to believe that we'd actually had an algal bloom in the lake because they didn't believe the numbers that we were showing. And so I was like, you want receipts? Here's a frickin' picture. <laughs> See, and people say peer reviewers. That's right. Broken. You're out there, peer reviewers. <laughs> You're doing a great job. Keep, keep Dr. Wilkinson in check. That's right. Um, peer review, the original showing of receipts. Um, <laughs> at least in our field. Yeah, so I, I think that's where that comes from. And, you know, the HSS paper, um, w once we get through this round of classic ecology papers, that might be a great one to go and revisit. I'd enjoy that. That was just a really, f I, re I remember that being a really fundamentally important paper to my thinking when I first started thinking about food webs. I don't know if you all remember reading it. I think we had to read it for terrestrial ecology. I've definitely uh, read it before, but it's been a long time. I'm looking for the citation in this paper so I can remind myself of it. Uh... What was the most? Can I tell you another thing? Is I didn't realize how I didn't realize how old Steve Carpenter was. <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, like 1985. Damn, Steve. I mean, I know you're retired now or whatever, but free range scientist. Yeah, older than I thought you were. He looks good. He looks good. It's good for his age. Yeah, that was so. Those trophic cascade experiments in the Peter and Paul and Tuesday Lakes. And the 1985 paper, where I think Steve had just started as a faculty member at Notre Dame, so it was his first 
first position there. So yeah, he he was a youngin. I don't feel like I'm going to be writing papers like that right now. I mean, hopefully, right? But no. Hell no. Oh, well, okay. Well, um, another thing I wanted to briefly mention, though, before we wrap this up, is I really liked the footnote style in science papers at this time. I guess I hadn't really... That hadn't registered, but it was both the references and the notes. So when there was like specific methods or things that need to be brought up instead of block text of methods at the end, it was specific footnotes that you could go and read to find out more information. Why don't we do that anymore? No, that that's 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 taken from like a history and style papers that use like the Turabian citation method that you can do that. And that's one thing that I really miss because I started out as a history major. Like switching from history over to, you know, science, you can't do that. Like in history and, and other fields, like you can write a footnote and you can like write this detailed information, right? Like you see this in a lot of like good, even popular science books will have this, like the footnotes at the end of the of chapter. Those are fascinating. Yeah. I love them, but it's not, no, yeah, people, I don't know when that fell out of fashion, but that definitely is just verboten in yeah. science stuff. Well, apparently in 1990, they were still doing it, and I think it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think it I think it especially works really well in, you know, a short format paper like science. Because, um, yeah, I mean, these are things that, you know, a, a reviewer, a close reader would want to know, but, you know, maybe they're not crucial to just the the overall you know broad message that the paper is trying to send and you know i love having a place where you can you know put those things in and have them be really accessible um you know not in you know some supplementary material document that you have to download and you know, flip back and forth between and then in five more years there's not going to be a software to open it and all that shit. Yeah. So, um, so why why do we write the papers in the style that we do? Someone told us to. Do you ever get frustrated with um I have this paper where we're I'm introducing a hypothesis that I don't that is wrong. Because the whole point is to refute the hypothesis. And I can't just, like, because I'm stuck in this archaic style, I can't just jump straight to what I want to write about, right? Because it won't ever go through review that way. I'm stuck of, like, building up this, like, straw man hypothesis just to refute throughout the paper. Because that's the, you know, archaic form that is required. Yeah. And I, I don't know why. I, why? That's a great question. And actually something in my SciComm class, we've been talking a lot about because it's not a great way to tell a story. Um, and we should be telling stories, right? But ha have you thought about trying it, like trying a slightly different format and with this particular paper and seeing if it flies? Because I feel like more recently I've been reading papers where they kind of break the um, intro methods results discussion paradigm a little bit and play around with it and it flies. It's hard when you're not a soul author, you know? <laughs> Good point. Yeah, you, you got it. I'll just leave it at that. Some of them may listen to the show. Um, 
I would left my own devices while I see the rhetorical value of it. I just don't necessarily ascribe as much value to the rhetorical nature of it as I believe some others would. Like I don't think there needs to necessarily be, you know, the relics of an Aristotelian past that we promenade around with. That would uh, make also, a really like, good yeah, album this, title, this... by the way. <laughs> I've also this has come up that you know I know that you know I've had a lot of conversations with folks recently about uh, you know the the cusp of big data leading us to pattern based observation is that science and um, you know I, I I don't think we're forsaking anything just because we have more knowledge that seems silly to me but. I think we're constantly viewing things through the lenses of things in the past. And it's ironic that we're reading this past paper here from 1990 that is in a much more clearer style, which has always been Nature and Science. Like Nature and Science articles like force you to write in a more pithy, direct way. And I guess my frustration is, is like, well, why don't more, you know, journals enforce that? Why are we stuck with this, you know, this format that's like, here's literally what everyone else in the world did. Here's what I did. Here's where it fits. Here's why those assholes are wrong. And here's why I'm right. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I was just laughing at the here's where those assholes are wrong part. <laughs> but isn't that like what discussions? Like you've read discussions and you know there's like, well, blah, blah, blah. Wilkinson 2018 points out that lakes are green, but clearly lakes are actually blue. <laughs> Here's machine learning that shows why. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, reading the old stuff, like, I'm like, ah, some of this is really well written and very clear and to the point. Like, we we obfuscate stuff unnecessarily, I think. And I think and it's been helpful to me, like, going back and reading some of these papers and stuff that we've done in the past, like, seeing there are good, clear ways to do this. And, and I just wonder, you know, Grace, kind of like you said, like, why are we stuck in these paradigms and you know there are you know things that are shifting that so i don't know i'm just i'm just i think some of the rhetorical methods are a little bit bloated and, and unnecessary and i think really good clear tight stories like this show a way forward mm-hmm. so absolutely and the embrace of new media but yeah you know so one of the things that i think i think makes this paper really clear in part is that you know there is a clear debate that it's addressing and you know there are different ideas that are in the literature um about you know how this or this type of system works and um it's a you know it's a it's a clear and thorough um, evaluation of those competing paradigms. I think that a lot of work that happens now is is not as clearly grounded in theory. And sometimes that makes it hard to do the kind of 
um, you know, hypothesis framing and, um, you know, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it a hypothesis framing that a lot of people consider to be a hallmark of good scientific writing. So do you have to have big questions with clear answers to be able to make that format work? Um, I, I think to some extent you do. You know, I, I wish that science or I mean, maybe maybe I can't speak broadly about science, but I think ecology were I wish ecology were more open to papers that were overtly descriptive in nature, whether that description comes from you know you know data synthesis or um natural history observation or whatever um i think that that those types of papers play an important role in moving the field forward but i really think that the way that many ecologists think about um what makes good science and you know it being you know very hypothesis driven um it kind of biases the field against papers that are more uh descriptive even if they have a lot of good things to say yeah yeah i agree agree with that and 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 i think that's where a lot of this sort of like i mean jeff I'm, i'm not you know insinuating that you didn't have um, you know, hypotheses and ideas about how your system worked when you were entering the study. But, but I think that that's where a lot of sort of like post hoc hypothesizing and, you know, trying to artificially somewhat, um, you know, set up papers as addressing hypotheses when they weren't necessarily um, conceived of in that um, in that manner, uh, actually, you know, kind of does a disservice to communicating about a study. No, I a hundred percent agree. I think you, you phrase it very well. It, it is in a way just, just post hoc hypothesis when it's more just like, okay, we have this new way to do this thing, this new way that we're going to see something, uh, or new way to measure something. And, you know, we have ideas about the system, about the concept, but we don't really know what this is going to look like. Let's go do it. Why do we need to form a hypothesis necessarily sometimes, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. That's why I, I tend to, I like the research questions a lot and I'm glad that, you know, you can phrase things in that way. Like that's a better, I mean, it's a compromise still, but it's, it's a reasonable compromise. Um, the the other stuff just sometimes just seems fake. It just seems like a facade more than it does like real very helpful do you, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you but do you think part of that is we might have lost the art of teaching and phrasing wording hypotheses and really the type of type of thinking that goes into doing that or organization of thinking it's just not as common anymore. Oh, yeah, I, I agree I, I I agree with that totally I think but there are just some things where it doesn't fit in that neat box. Oh, sure. And, and then I think a lot of times when you're pushing fields forward, you're at that edge where you're outside the neat box. 
and that's where it does feel a little bit um, artificial sometimes. Not to say I'm doing anything bold and creative, I'm not, but it's just more like I think you know when you work at the edge of something, it does get weird, and I don't you know. I, I, don't I know, but then the the, the count. Oh, I no. think we got a whole other episode here. What is science? <laughs> All right, so we've come up with six new episodes to run. Do we already have a Google Doc that's already like overflowing? Yeah, and we have if that too. You all have an that's idea good. for us? Please let us know. We would love to hear it, and we'd love to talk about your idea or talk about it with you. Uh, in the meantime, you can find our podcast on many different platforms, including Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, more. Um, as well as you can find us. Thank it. you. Nailed I know it. I usually don't, right? Um, yeah. That's a hell of a transition, too. Um, I would like it to say... We're going to fuck up your transition by talking about the transition. <laughs> on my tombstone, I would like <laughs> to say Grace Wilkinson, queen of the transition. Um, and you can also find us, of course, on Twitter at Major underscore Revisions. Same thing on Instagram. And you can always check us out on our website or shoot us an email on our Gmail, which you can also find on the website. And with that, we will catch you all next time.